When I was quite small, I would sometimes dream of a city, which was strange because it began before I even knew what a city was. But this city, clustered on the curve of a big blue bay, would come into my mind. I could see the streets and the buildings that lined them, the waterfront, even boats in the harbor. Yet, waking, I had never seen the sea or a boat. And the buildings were quite unlike any I knew. The traffic in the streets was strange, carts running with no horses to pull them, and sometimes there were things in the sky, shiny fish-shaped things that certainly were not birds. Most often I would see this wonderful place by daylight, but occasionally it was by night, when the lights lay like strings of glowworms along the shore, and a few of them seemed to be sparks drifting on the water or in the air. And once, when I was still young enough to know no better, I asked my eldest sister, Mary, where this lovely city could be. She shook her head and told me that there was no such place, not now. But perhaps, she suggested, I could somehow be dreaming about times long ago. Dreams were funny things and there was no accounting for them. So it might be that what I was seeing was a bit of the world that had been once upon a time, the wonderful world that the old people had lived in as it had been before God sent tribulation. Those were the first paragraphs of John Wyndham's The Chrysalids. I'm your host, Stephanie, and this is the end. I chose The Chrysalids for episode one because I have a hunch that for a lot of people, it represents their first exposure to dystopian fiction. I didn't read it myself until I was in high school. I think it was part of the grade nine or 10 curriculum, but it made a huge impression. It's one of those books that stays with you, and I think the reason for this is that it fully creates its own world. Now, this is something that all great fiction does, to pull you in and show you a glimpse of a specific place or a specific mind to which you wouldn't otherwise have access. But just by definition, creating these alternate worlds, whether it's something completely apart from our own or a world that's identical but for one weird distinction, this is kind of the bread and butter of dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction. The world of the chrysalids is one that's both familiar and alien. The people live in post-apocalypse Labrador. And as an aside, I must say that as a Canadian kid, to encounter a Canadian setting in a sci-fi book for the first time was both a thrill and a revelation. So they're living in this farming area that they call Waknuk. Most readers will recognize the ruralness of this place. The people live simply, they have guns, but they still use arrows as well. Agriculture and raising livestock seem to be the main activities. Scratch the surface though, and there's much more going on than tilling and plowing here. In fact, there's a pretty dark side to this world and it takes a bunch of different forms. We've got mysterious blights and mutations. There's a system of ethics based on religion. And then there's this whole idea of us versus the other. Now, The Chrysalids was published in 1955, but of course many of these concerns will also be familiar to you reading and listening today. And these are themes that are going to come up again and again in this first season of The End. Through the lens of this alternate society in The Chrysalids, a society which in some ways is also a possible future version of ourselves, we can take a kind of sideways look at some of the preoccupations and, let's face it, fears of our own times. For example, what might the world look like after a nuclear war or similar man-made catastrophe? How would it rebuild itself? 
So many of us grew up with what felt like a very real prospect of nuclear war looming over us. Whether this was my parents' generation, who during the Cuban Missile Crisis had school drills that required them to practice diving under their desks, or kids growing up in the 70s and 80s for whom the subjects of the arms race and fallout shelters and things like the Strategic Defense Initiative were completely normal things to hear about on the 6 o'clock news, we've been through a really long stretch of perpetually feeling like Armageddon is just around the corner. One of my high school history teachers even had an annual tradition of screening a TV movie called The Day After in class. Spoiler alert, the day after a nuclear attack really sucks. Carl Sagan had this to say at the time to ABC News in 1983. This was in an interview that actually followed the original airing of that same TV movie. Imagine a room, he said, a wash in gasoline, and there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches, the other has 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead, who's stronger. Well, that's the kind of situation we are actually in. The amount of weapons that are available to the United States and the Soviet Union are so bloated, so grossly in excess of what's needed to dissuade the other, that if it weren't so tragic, it would be laughable. And I think that kind of sums up the mood at the time. The prevalence of these concerns and a real sense of imminence made a nuclear war seem like a foregone conclusion. And this in turn made the idea of a post-nuclear world a fixture in our collective imaginations. If you know 80s movies, you'll be familiar with the ways in which our future world was commonly depicted, whether post-nuclear or otherwise. Think the bleak, overbuilt urban chaos of Total Recall, or the broken industrial landscape of the future war scene in Terminator 1. Barring the alternative Mad Max type outcome, the future was going to be a cold, crowded, grey place. That seemed pretty clear. The Chrysalids, by contrast, gives us David and Rosalind's world, and it's a place that's very different from what your average Pac-Man playing, sticker-collecting kid might have anticipated. Because for all its ominousness, and in spite of the violence both real and threatened, this is a world in its details that's in many ways personal and warm. Let's just assume that the tribulation event was a nuclear holocaust or something on that scale. The end has come and gone here, and instead of space food, we get hunks of cheese and loaves of bread. When we first see Sophie, she's wearing corduroys, which, if you were a kid in the 60s, 70s, or early 80s, is just an almost visceral evocation of childhood itself. Instead of battles for fuel, we've got wagons and great horses with baskets big as sidecars. It's almost like X-Men meets Little House on the Prairie. And while the descriptions of the flora and fauna of the fringes are tinged with a kind of horror, they're also almost Zeusian at the same time. We've got mushrooms the size of boulders and fang creatures that, yes, can rip a horse apart, but in my mind's eye, I see a world that's made up of sepia-toned trufula tree forests, complete with hummingfish and elephant birds, and there's something really appealing about that. So if lately we feel ourselves hurtling towards a very uncertain future, with some very bad outcomes in the realm of possibility, 
Another question we like to ask is, how would we remake ourselves should the worst come to pass? Would we, the lucky or unlucky survivors, refashion society and rework our ideas and systems? Or would we continue down the same old path towards the same old doom? The chrysalis presents us with at least two possibilities. And to be fair, geography plays a huge role in how the cultural atmosphere of these two societies shook out. The Labradorians, descendants of the people presumably hit hardest by the tribulations, are isolated, and in their isolation have come to view themselves as the ideal, the people made in God's image. Combine that with the fear of anyone who doesn't look like them, and this idea that failing to weed out the ungodlike will have repercussions for them, and we get this culture of extreme violence where it becomes required to purge and thwart any life that's outside the norm. The Zealanders, on the other hand, are the ones who affirm that life is all about change and that what's born on the fringes is not something to be stamped out in favor of some arbitrary superstitious ideal. Though they see their own ability to think speak as a more desirable product of evolution, they're also prepared to accept that people will keep evolving and that they themselves are not the last word. All of this brings us right back around to the idea of getting a glimpse inside another mind into another person's consciousness. Underlying the book's central tension of who are the most legit humans is the idea of connection between us. Just how close can one human get to another? There's a strata of people who are limited to mere words, and then there are the ones who use thought forms, and even among them, there seems to be layers of ability, and therefore a hierarchy of connectedness, with Petra at the top, the Zealander type people somewhere in the middle, and the Michael, David, Rosalind group at the bottom. And even among that group, there's a lot of nuance to just how well you can know another, and David and Rosalind are the perfect example of this. David and Rosalind have a real Gelfling mind meld moment just after their capture in the fringes. When he's just finished talking about the two Rosalinds, the Rosalind she constructed to defend herself, the one that everyone can see, and then the underneath Rosalind that no one else can see, not even the other think speakers in their group. So even though she's been in this really tightly knit thought form group who think of themselves really as one, there's an entirely deeper level at work here. I picture David Lynch's image of the lake in Catching the Big Fish. Maybe not as deep as that, but a separate space completely from the others, in which these two are swimming around together. Words exist, says David, that can, used by a poet, achieve a dim monochrome of the body's love. But beyond that, they fell clumsily. And he goes on. The distance and the difference between us dwindled and vanished. We could meet, mingle, and blend. Neither one of us existed anymore. These are the mechanics of think speaking at its utmost. It's the dismantling of any difference between a you and an I, the total dissolution of any notion of a distinct and separate self. And it's a counterpoint to the unease and outright discord that can arise from the simple fact that we norms are stuck in our own little silos of consciousness. 
We have empathy and we have words, but sometimes that isn't enough. It's something we're stuck with and something we struggle with. And one day it just might lead us to the brink of disaster. Thanks for listening to this first episode of The End. Be sure not to miss the next one by hitting subscribe in iTunes or signing up for the newsletter at npodcast.co.